Amen. If you have a Bible, take it out. I'd like you to find two passages uh, in your copy of God's Word. I'd like you to find 2 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to read most of our story from 2 Samuel 24. I'd also like you to find 2 Chronicles 21. We're going to read the last part of our story from, uh, from uh, excuse me, 1 Chronicles uh, 21. So 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. Every 10 years, the United States government carries out a census. They try to count every single person living in the United States of America. We're not the first nation to carry out a census. Uh, we are, some historians would, would say, the first nation to put into our founding documents, our Constitution, uh, that a census is something that we're going to do. It's a legal requirement. Article 1, Section 2 of the United States Constitution says that every 10 years there will be, quote, an enumeration of persons. And there's some interesting history when you go back and look at previous censuses. We're in a census year this year, 2020, and I came across a great story. It comes from 1890 when the United States census introduced a new piece of technology. I realize you look at this picture and you don't think that looks very technological, but in 1890, this was a big deal. And the man on the left is a man named Herman Hollerith, and the machine on the right is a Hollerith machine. And so this was 1890, and here's the story of Herman and the Hollerith machine. In 1888, the United States government had a contest. It was open to anybody that wanted to participate. And the contest was related to the census. They said, we want you to build a machine that will help tabulate the census results more quickly. And they opened it up. Anybody can participate. If you win the contest, you get the government contract. We'll buy your machine. We'll build your machine. There were a whopping three entrants into the, con the, the contest. There were three contestants in 1888. They gave each one the results of the census from St. Louis, from uh, excuse me, 1880, and they said, we're going to time you. You have to tabulate all the results from St. Louis. We're putting you on the clock. These were the results. The first contestant completed it in 189 hours, all the results from St. Louis. The second contestant uh, took 156 hours, and Herman Hollerith and his Hollerith machine completed the entire task in just 78 hours. He won the contract. The United States government used the Hollerith machine in 1890, and they actually used it all the way up through the 1950s. This was used to tabulate census results for decades and decades afterwards. So this is 2020. It's a census year. Some of you have gotten your census in the mail. You've done it online. This year there are 10 questions on the United States census. The original census that was carried out had five questions. If you filled out a census form 10 years ago, you might remember it had 50 questions. And so the number of questions varies decade by decade. We're at 10 questions this year. Uh, the government uses the census to plan uh, congressional districts and state representation and tax dollar allocation and that sort of stuff. And people have varying opinions. 
about the United States Census. Some people see it's an invasion of privacy. They don't want the government to know anything about them. Some, of it th- uh, some people think it's mildly annoying and uh, it's just something they don't want to bother with. And some people think it's vital and necessary and important. My point in all of this is to say as Americans, we're very familiar with the idea of a census. It's not foreign to us. And our story tonight in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 is a story about a census. We've come all the way through the life of David. We started with David uh, being anointed as king in Bethlehem, the youngest of Jesse's sons. Uh, We followed him all the way through his rise to power, the highs, the lows, the ups and the downs. We're now at the end of David's life. And at the end of David's life, he decides, I'm going to take a census of the people. And because that's so familiar to us, we hear that, we read that, and we say, well, of course you need to do that. You need to know how many people are there. You need to know where they live. You need to know something about them. It seems completely normal and completely routine for us. It's clear when we read this story, it wasn't normal, it wasn't routine, and it wasn't something that pleased the Lord in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't a necessity that David had to carry out as king. It was actually a very dark day for Israel and a very dark day David. It's interesting, many authors who write about David's life don't say anything about this. As we've gone through this study of David's life, there's been about five books that I've referenced regularly, and I've shared quotes with you and ideas with you from those books. Three of those authors say absolutely nothing about this. They don't mention it. They just pretend like it's not there. Part of me sympathizes with them. It's a difficult passage, as you'll see in just a minute. There's some pieces to this story that are hard to make sense of, and that just to be honest with you, I don't have all of the answers to all of the questions that we might ask. But it is an important episode in David's life, and it teaches us some very, very important lessons that we need to learn. So we'll start with a quote from Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll. He says, there is no such thing as outgrowing sin. In 2 Samuel 24 and the parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 21, we are given a vivid account of a tragic example of this when David, in the latter years of his life, committed a sin that affected thousands of lives. This event probably took place on the heels of a war between Israel and her age-old enemy, the Philistines. Interestingly, we find a parallel here between David's last battle or one of his last battles and his first battle. Both were with Philistines and both involved giants. David killed Goliath in that first battle. In this last one, a brother of Goliath was killed, as were several others who are called, quote, descendants of the giants in Gath. I'll let you dig into the text to read about some of these final battles that David fought. Our focus is on what happens after these final battles are fought and David carries out the census. So we're going to break it into a couple of episodes. So we'll start with episode one, the census itself. We're just going to read the story, 2 Samuel 24. We'll read verse 1 all the way down to verse 9. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Just Keep that phrase in your mind. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited 
David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazer, they came to Gilead and Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And when they came to Dan, uh, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, they came to the fortress of Tyre, to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. And we'll stop there in verse 9. That's episode 1, the census. When you read that section, there's some questions that pop into my mind, and I want to acknowledge them, and I want to be honest with you. I don't have all of the answers to these questions. You have seen enough press conferences lately where people are asked questions and they don't know the answer, but they say something anyway. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you. I don't know the answer. And some of these answers we can speculate on, but we just don't know. So question one, why was the Lord angry with Israel? That's the first thing we read in 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The text in 2 Samuel doesn't tell us why. When you read this story in 1 Chronicles, it doesn't mention that detail. It's just excluded from the story. And so you'd like to stop and say, what happened? Why was the Lord angry with the people? And the text simply doesn't tell you. We assume there was some sort of Torah violation in the nation. Maybe it was... Uh, amongst the people, the common people. Maybe it was in the palace and the royal family, but there was something that angered the Lord. I'll give you my speculation in just a minute. Question number two, who actually incited David to take the census? Did God incite him to do it, or did Satan incite him to do it? And you can compare the stories in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. 2 Samuel 24 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Meaning, the Lord incited David to do this thing. When you read the same story in 1 Chronicles 21, it says Satan incited David to do this thing, to take this census, to number all of the people. You read that and you say, well, which one is it? Did God do it or did Satan do it? And maybe the best answer is yes. And maybe the best way to find an explanation for that yes is to go to the book of Job, which we won't do tonight, but you can read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're passages that are probably familiar to many of you. We read in Job 1 and 2 about a, a meeting of the sons of God. And Satan is there, and he comes into the presence of the Lord. And the Lord 
boasts or brags about his servant, Job. How great he is, how, how, how righteous he is, how, how trusting he is. And Satan responds to God's claims by accusing Job and saying, Job will turn on you and uh, implying that God's not all, of, all that worthy to begin with. And he says, if you let me afflict him, he'll curse you to your face. And shockingly, the Lord says to Satan, you can go. He sets a boundary for Satan, but he lets him go. Job doesn't know any of this is going on. All he knows is that great affliction suddenly comes into his life. He loses an incredible amount in a very short time. He experiences pain and suffering and loss and grief. And at the end of it, in Job 122, Job says the Lord had afflicted him. And verse 22 says, when Job said that, he did not sin with his lips. Meaning, it was not sinful for Job to look at his situation and to say that God in his sovereignty was behind it. We've had the curtain pulled back. We know that the immediate cause was Satan. who was allowed to, to tempt Job. But we also understand what Job understood, that none of it would have happened to him if the Lord had not allowed it. He was sovereign and in control of all of it. And I think that's the best way you can understand this scenario. Was the Lord angry with Israel for some transgression? The text says that he was. Did Satan want to destroy the people? And did, he, did he, Satan want to tempt the people to evil? He did. And the Lord allowed that temptation to take place. And yet it's also true, 2 Samuel 24, that the Lord was sovereign over all of it. And that in allowing something that he couldn't stop, it's right to say that he actually, in a sense, did it. There's a quote from a, a Bible scholar named Robert Bergen that I think is helpful here. He says, in order to bring judgment against Israel, the Lord, quote, incited David to, quote, take a census of Israel and Judah. The writer's attribution of the action to the Lord is not contradictory to 1 Chronicles 21.1. It reflects his understanding that Yahweh is the Lord of the universe, exercising dominion over all powers and authorities, whether in heaven or on earth. He goes on to say this, the fact that the Lord oversees the entire judgment process is ultimately a comfort. This is what I want you to see. It's ultimately a comfort to humanity. It means, whether you see it in Job or where you see it at the end of David's life, it means that no malevolent action can occur that is not subject to God's oversight and divinely imposed limitations. It also means that nothing can occur in the universe that God cannot ultimately use for good. And he gives you some examples of passages that you can look at. Genesis 50, the story of Joseph. Acts 2, the story of the crucifixion. Romans 8, the story of our suffering. Satan was involved, and the Lord was sovereign over all of it. Question number three, what was actually the sin in taking the census? What was it about the census that made David's decision wrong and wicked and brought the Lord's anger and eventual judgment against David and the nation? You have a number of theories floated out there. One theory is pride, that David, towards the end of his life, 
rather than finding his security and his comfort and his strength in the Lord, begins to look for all of those things and to find all of those things, not in God, but in his army, in soldiers, in his military, in weapons, and a head count. That's one possibility. Another possibility I think has some, some serious weight to it, it rests in Exodus 30. And you can look up Exodus 30. It's God speaking to Moses. He's bringing the people out. And God says to Moses, look, when you take a census, you hear that? When you take a census, you're going to require a half shekel offering from all those who are counted. Some scholars tie a line between Exodus 30 and our passage and say maybe David was just not carrying the census out the way God had instructed them to carry a census out. That offering had a purpose and it was to be used for certain things in the tabernacle or eventually would have been at the temple after David's life. Maybe David was bypassing the Lord's instruction. Another possible explanation comes from Swindoll who says this. Uh, He says David was out of touch with God. We don't find him praying or seeking God's counsel or searching the scriptures before he made the decision. He simply decides to do it. Additionally, Swindoll says, David was unaccountable to anyone around him, which was a dangerous oversight. His point is simply that David is not seeking God's will in this matter and that David is not listening to people who care about him. The end answer is we just don't know specifically what it was about this census that angered the Lord. One last question. This one is tricky. How many soldiers were counted in the census? We read just a moment ago, 2 Samuel 24, said there were 8,000 valiant men in Israel and there were 500,000 in Judah. But if you read the same account in 1 Chronicles, and I'm just giving you this information so you don't have to find it on your own, the chronicler says there were 1.1 million in Israel and 470,000 in Judah. A lot of people look at that and say, well, that's just a contradiction. That's just wrong. One is right, the other is wrong, or they're both wrong, but they both can't be right. I would just suggest to you that this shouldn't bother you, that you shouldn't see this as a contradiction in the Bible. I think it's entirely plausible to assume that both authors, the author of 2 Samuel and the author of 1 Chronicles, had access to the actual census numbers, the actual census records. And perhaps they looked tribe by tribe, region by region, and perhaps they rounded differently and added them up and came to different totals. That is not at all without, uh, outside of the realm of possibility. Another thing I would suggest to you is that 1 Chronicles was written many years after 2 Samuel. And whoever wrote 1 Chronicles had read 2 Samuel. We know that because so much of it is so, so close. But some of it's different. And when the author of 1 Chronicles wrote his account, he didn't blush in reporting different numbers. He didn't see a a, a contradiction there. And the last thing I would say to you, we use numbers like this all the time, rounding different ways. We use it when we talk about maybe average for church attendance. How many did you have on a Sunday? How many do you normally have on a Sunday? We use numbers like this in sports all of the time, and I'll give you an example. Kansas Jayhawks, 
They play in Allen Fieldhouse. This was our year to win the national championship. I'm still grieving that the tournament was canceled. Uh, I'm one of the Jayhawk fans who says we should hang a banner. We were number one at the end of the season. That should count as a national championship. We should get to put a banner up. They probably won't do that. Here's my point. I don't know when this game was. I don't know who they were playing. I don't know what, what year or what season this was in. Here's what I know. When they reported the attendance for this game, the reported attendance was 16,300. That's the capacity of Allen Fieldhouse. And for almost 200 straight games, the reported attendance for every single Kansas Jayhawks home basketball game has been 16,300. How many people are at the game? 16,300. Next game, 16,300. Next game, 16,300. Nobody looks at those numbers and thinks that there were exactly, precisely 16,300 people at each and every Kansas Jayhawk game for the last 200 games going backwards. All of us understand that's how many the building holds, and it was full. It was a sellout. Did a few extra students sneak in this game? Maybe. Did somebody get sick and stay home and not fill their seat at that game? Perhaps. But 16,300 communicates the information that we need to be communicated. And when these authors are telling you the, the report of the census, they're not trying to dial it down to the individual. They're giving you the big picture about what the results were. We use language like this all of the time. And so I don't think the numbers are contradictory. Now I realize we've gone through those verses and there's a lot of question marks. There's a lot of things that you say, well, that's, that's just kind of fuzzy. Well, it's about to get a little bit more clear in the next two sections. So let's move to episode two, David's confession. David's confession. Second Samuel 24, we're going to read verse 10 to verse 17. Verse 10 says, but David's heart struck him. And I'd like you to, if you like to make notes, circle that word struck. David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and from the morning until the appointed time, there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 
When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned. And I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Several things I want you to see here as David confesses his sin. Number one, at the end of the census, David was, we'll use the word, convicted of sin. He felt a deep conviction of sin. Conviction of sin is different than being sorry that you got caught in a sin. Conviction of sin is the idea that you're sorry you did the sin. David feels conviction. And the text in verse 10 says, David's heart struck him. His heart struck him. That word struck is the Hebrew word nakah. Nakah. Here's what the word means in other contexts. It means attack, assault, destroy, slaughter, wound, cripple. It's a violent word. And the author of 2 Samuel says David's heart struck him. He felt an affliction and a violence in his heart and in his soul. It's the same word used in 1 Chronicles 21.7. When the author of 1 Chronicles says that the Lord was angry with Israel and he struck the land. It's the same word. It's a word of violence. It's a a word of force. It's a, a word of affliction. David was convicted of his sin. Secondly, that feeling of conviction resulted in confession. He didn't just sit on it and feel sorry for himself. He didn't just wallow in self-pity and remorse and guilt, but he confessed it. Now look, we live in a day and age where people have forgotten how to confess, specifically sin. We see people all the time, celebrities. That's who we watch on TV. That's who we see on the internet. They say something they should not have said, at least by societal standards. They do something they should not have done, at least by societal standards. And they stand up in front of everybody at some point and they say, I'm sorry that this happened. I'm sorry that people were offended. I'm sorry that I said something that I really didn't mean. What they rarely say is, I'm sorry, period. David, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to shift blame. He doesn't try to excuse himself or justify himself. He just confesses his sin. He says, I've sinned greatly. He talks about his own iniquity. That's the idea of a a twistedness or a perversion in your soul. He says, I have acted very foolishly. Essentially, he said, I've been stupid for doing what I've done. He says, what I've done was wicked. 
And when you read this story in 1 Chronicles, David says something that you see echoed here. David sees this plague being inflicted on Israel, and he says, I did it. I did it. I'm the one who bears the responsibility for this. He doesn't blame the people. He doesn't blame Joab. He doesn't blame Satan. He doesn't say the devil made me do it. He says, I did it. He doesn't blame the Lord. He doesn't say, you put me in a situation that was just far too tempting. What else could I have done in a situation like that? He just simply says, I did it. He confesses and he owns it. Next, God speaks to David through Gad and he allows him, it's very interesting, to choose his punishment. It's the only example of this that I know of in the Bible where the Lord comes to somebody who has confessed their sin and the Lord essentially says there's going to be a consequence, there's going to be discipline, there's going to be a punishment, and you get to pick it. And he just asks him, what do you want? He says you can have three years of famine. He says you can have three months of being defeated by your enemies. Or he says you can have three days of pestilence. And as we read it, 2 Samuel 24, verse 15, 70,000 people died in the pestilence. I know what every American thinks when we read 2 Samuel 24, verse 15, 70,000 people died because David took a census. We read that and we say, that doesn't seem fair. How is that proportional? to what David has done. How is that fair? Chuck Swindoll gives us some wisdom. I think it's helpful. He says, I can just hear someone respond to all this, saying, how can God do such things? He says, frankly, I wonder instead, how can God stop where he does knowing what we deserve? We deserve none of the benefits that come our way. They are all benefits of his magnificent grace. If sinful folks like us got what we really, quote, deserved, it would be nothing short of hell itself. As Americans, we can't get over the question, that doesn't seem fair. I don't deserve that. As Christians, one of the things that happens when you're converted is you repent, you change your mind, and you begin to see things differently. And rather than looking at a situation like this and saying, that's not fair, those people didn't deserve it, you begin to look at the situation through the lens of grace, and you say with Swindoll, why did you relent? You know the people. You know that the wages of sin is death. You know what they deserve. You know David's heart. Why did you show grace? One perspective takes offense at God's judgment. The other perspective marvels at God's revelation of His grace. I hope when you think about your relationship with the Lord that you don't look at God and say, God, but you owe me this. God, but why would you afflict me in this way? God, would you allow that to happen to me? Why, why, why? Rather, I hope you look at your life through the lens of grace rather than entitlement, and you say, God, why have you been so gracious to me? There's no explanation in my heart, in my life, for why you've been so kind and so patient and so good and so faithful to me. 
I hope you have the right perspective. The Lord relented just as the angel was about to destroy Jerusalem. It was an act of grace. He relented just as the angel was going to destroy Jerusalem. That brings us to episode 3, which we will read from 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 18. We'll read down through the first verse of chapter 22. It says, Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. When he turned and saw the angel and his four sons were with him, hid themselves David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David. He went out from the threshing floor, and he paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I've given oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. David built there an altar to the Lord. He presented offerings, peace offerings, burnt offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven. On the altar of burnt offering, then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. At that time, David saw that the Lord had answered him. At the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time at the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, and this is what I want you to see, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David built an altar, and he offered sacrifices at the spot, at the time when the Lord relented. So there's an altar and their sacrifices, and then later the location of the altar becomes the location of the temple. This is the temple mount, the spot where Solomon will eventually build the temple. Now, what do we do with this story? David takes a census, he confesses it, and then we see the fallout, the forgiveness, the grace, even in the midst of the judgment and the discipline. Let me give you just a couple of of lessons. Lesson number one, We never outgrow sin. We never outgrow sin. And just think about the things that David has been through at this age, the very end of his life. He has lived as a refugee running from Saul. He's been enthroned as the king first over Judah and then over Israel. He's defeated giants in one-on-one combat. He's defeated armies. He's raided villages. He's pretended to be a madman in enemy territory. He's marched out to battle with the Philistines against Israel. 
and was ready to fight with the Philistines. And the Lord saved him from that at the last moment. He has taken many wives. He's reaped some of the consequence of not paying attention to his family life. He has reigned with justice. For the most part, he's been a good, godly king. But he's also committed adultery, murder, and drew people into a net of conspiracy. He's had his own children, his own sons, try to raise up against him in revolt, and he's had to leave his capital and flee, only to come back later and for that son to be killed. David has been through a lot. And yet here, at the end of his life, he's still battling the flesh. There is still a roaring lion, the devil, Satan, out seeking to devour David. And he still bears the weight and the responsibility of leadership. The idea that your actions impact the people that you lead. That's true on a family level, a church level, a national level. We'll end with this quote on this thought from Swindoll. If a man as great and godly as David could foul up his life so near the end of his days, so can anyone else. That includes you. That includes me. God help us all. You never outgrow sin. The devil does not take days off. Your flesh does not just roll over and play dead when you get baptized. Sin is something you have to fight from the moment you repent and believe in Jesus to the very last breath you take on this earth. You have got to fight it. We never outgrow it. Secondly and last, David's sacrifices give us a preview of Jesus' sacrifice. The sacrifices David offers that avert this plague are a dim, faint picture of what would happen many, many years later when the son of David walked the earth. There's a quote from Robert Bergen that explains this well. He says, In making these sacrifices for his people, David foreshadowed the actions of Jesus, the ultimate son of David, who also gave sacrificially on a hill near Jerusalem for his people so that an even more tragic plague might be stopped. David's climactic sacrifice involved the use of wood and blood on a hill outside the city. So did Jesus' sacrifice. He says David's sacrifice stopped a physical plague that had taken the lives of many Israelites But by Jesus' wounds, the new Israel, likewise, has been healed because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, quoting from 1 Peter. Once again, we've seen this throughout the story of David. All of these episodes in his life give us just a preview, a glimpse, a glimmer, a short window of hope into what the son of David would do who he would be, and what he would accomplish on our behalf. And these sacrifices that David offered that avert this plague point us forward to the true sacrifice that Jesus offered that saves us from sin, from death, from ourselves, from the devil. These sacrifices point us to the true sacrifice. My prayer for you is that you hope, you trust, you believe, you build your life on that sacrifice that Jesus, the son of David, offered on the cross 
2,000 years ago.